if you find problems, obviously you want to remediate them, but figure out what you need to do in terms of voluntary disclosures, because typically you'll be much better off than if OFAC figures it out on their own, which they usually do. <laughs> Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Hello, everyone. Michael Volkoff here. It's great to welcome back to the podcast Matt Stankowitz, our cryptocurrency expert and the feature for this episode. And Matt, back welcome by back. Popular back by popular demand for cryptocurrency, which is one of your many expertise, but cryptocurrency and sanctions risks. And I thought, Matt, it would be good for you to join us because we had another enforcement action, but to me, from OFAC, and this was with Poloniex, another crypto exchange, but if you look over sort of the last six months or a little bit longer, we've seen Bittrex and Payword, which is better known as Kraken, also were subject to enforcement actions. And I thought it would be a good chance for you to sort of help us to understand how these cryptocurrency companies are getting into trouble, what it is that they're screwing up with, and what they need to do going forward. Yeah, we've seen a lot of activity in the cryptocurrency industry, especially as of late. Like you mentioned, we just had this recent enforcement action with Poloniex. And then prior, we had the enforcement actions against Kraken and Bittrex. And these are three prominent exchanges. These are not some of the fly-by-night exchanges that we see pop up and then go bust pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of these exchanges are really like the staple exchanges in the industry. Poloniex for the longest time had been, I'd never used it, but it's always been that old reliable exchange, even more so once they were acquired by Circle, who runs the USDC stablecoin, really gave it a lot more legitimacy at that point. Although they've since spun it off and it's now, I'm not even sure who owns it now at this point. Bitrix was one of the early cryptocurrency exchanges available in the U.S. And Kraken especially is really one of the most prominent ones even still today. So it's just interesting to see OFAC go so aggressively against these companies. Not too surprising considering the extreme sanctions risk that cryptocurrency poses. But very importantly, there's still a lot of takeaways that really any industry can take away from these enforcement actions. It's a lot of simple things, relatively simple things that compliance departments across industries can take away from this to improve their own programs. Yeah, just to set it up a little bit, Poloniex ended up paying $7.591 million to OFAC, which is not such a small amount in the OFAC world. Bittrex paid $24.2 million, but there were two settlements involving OFAC and FinCEN, whereas Kraken only paid $362,000. But the thing that's clear is crypto is clearly on OFAC's radar, and they know that if they take the time to investigate some of these exchanges, they're going to end up with an enforcement action and a settlement of some sort. But let's start first with Poloniex. 
Just, well, just um, an interesting aside, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Bitrex, they just declared bankruptcy this past week, unfortunately. <laughs> I noticed that. Are they truly going out of business, or is this just a reorganization of some sort? Funny enough, their top creditor right now is OFAC with this <laughs> enforcement action. You're filing. kidding. Yeah, oh, yeah, they would be at the top. The <laughs> yeah, they would be. So you don't want to have them as your first creditor. Right. This may be a regal organization, though. I don't know the specifics, but Bitrix did announce last month that they were planning to leave the U.S. So this could just be the U.S. entity that's gone bankrupt while they shifted all the assets elsewhere. I, I don't know. I'm not a bankruptcy attorney, so I don't know what they can and can't do there, but it could relate to that somehow. Wow. Well, that's interesting. And they may be saying, what, they're not going to comply with all the KYC and all the other regulatory requirements. I mean, that's kind of weird. Yeah. I think they're worried. I mean, I know it sounds kind of ominous when they leave. It sounds like they're going to do bad things, but I don't think that's the case. I think their concern is that the regulators have been a little too aggressive with crypto. OFAC is one thing and they're doing their part. And I don't think any of these enforcement actions are out of the ordinary by any means. I think Bitrix is worried about the SEC specifically, but that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> So you won't dive into that now, but I think that's really what's scaring a lot of these crypto companies away. Even Coinbase, they're looking to start an offshore entity as well. They're not going to leave the U.S., but they're going to focus some more of their operations outside of it. And I frankly think that to the extent the U.S. starts to put the screws to some of these companies, I think there may be some following from other countries, being the U.K., Singapore, other people will take a more aggressive stance, I think particularly if they see that the Americans are recovering money out of it to the right. treasury. Well, let's take a moment just to set you up on Poloniex. Like I said, 7.5 million. They focused on a five-year period where the trading platform was allowing 2014 to 2019 customers from sanctioned jurisdictions to do crypto transactions. And I think what happened is they implemented a KYC and internet protocol address data, sort of IP geo blocking in stages or never really got it totally together. But that turned out to be the problem was the way in which they implemented this a little bit late. There was a time period where they, they didn't have anything. But fill us in a little bit on the KYC and the sort of geo blocking type of issues and why they got into trouble like that. Yeah, so I think the biggest issue here is that they just began implementing things a little haphazardly. We talked about cryptocurrency and how some companies moving offshore and it sounds like they're trying to do bad things. They want to work with bad actors. I don't think that's the case in general, and I definitely don't see that as the case with Poloniex here. I think they tried to comply to the best that they were able to, but just as a fledgling startup company, it's a little tricky. It obviously takes a lot of resources and if you're not making money as a startup early on, if they're trying, as you're in rapid growth, it can be difficult to implement these controls. That said, they gradually rolled them out over time. And just in general, OFAC doesn't expect necessarily the pristine best-in-class program from a small startup as it's getting geared up. They understand there are growing pains and they view that as a mitigating factor. For example, I mean, if you're Amazon or Apple, you're a top company in the world, trillion-dollar company, you better have a Great compliance program. World class, world class. Right. Yeah. And of course, those two companies have already been the subject of enforcement actions. Of course. 
Poloniex did try their best to roll it out as they were growing. The biggest trip up that they hit, and again, this is a great takeaway for really compliance programs of all industries, is that they did not apply their controls retroactively. So at some point, they implemented their KYC onboarding program, comprehensive screening protocol to screen against sanctions list and to verify sanctioned countries, really like full-blown screening process. But what they failed to do was rescreen their prior customers. So once this was implemented, sure, new customers from Iran, for example, blocks no longer able to access the platform and could not trade on it. Great. That's obviously what you want. That said, there were some Iranian customers that had signed up early on that were on the platform using it and continue to use it after these new controls were in place. I mean, they started in 2014, but 2015, they began to monitor their IP address data and from logins and things like that to see where they were coming from. And if they were associated with the sanctioned jurisdiction, they do additional due diligence. But it took them three years till, like you're saying, three years till June 2017 to block IP addresses. So that's three yeah. year, Matt, of transactions in business where you could be processing transactions with existing customers involving Iran, involving Cuba or whatever. Now, one other point I wanted to, and this is another pointer that we run into all the time, is they didn't block sanctions controls for Crimea until even later. And most of the violations involved Crimea. And now we have a situation where not only is Crimea blocked, but we have eastern regions, two eastern regions in the Ukraine that are blocked. So that I hope that crypto companies are blocking all of those transactions that are linked to those geographic areas. But I mean, this to me is just a perfect example of what you're saying that if you do this piecemeal and then don't go back ever to your existing customers, what happens? Yeah, I think the geo-blocking, again, kind of came from a good place, obviously. How it was initially implemented, though, was a little too manual. You would get these alerts that someone is trying to access the Poloniex platform from a Cuban IP address, and someone has to manually go in and verify, one, if that's correct, two, do some due diligence on the owner to see what's going on there, and then it could be a long period until that account is closed, if it ever is. So... You have to imagine if you're reviewing each hit like that manually, it's a very time-intensive process, and I can't imagine they had enough staff on hand to do that. So yes, it took about two years for them to outright block IP addresses from these locations, and that's a little too long. <laughs> Again, this is a problem that we've seen with several other companies, not just in the crypto companies, that once they get the new fancy controls in place, they don't apply them retroactively. I mean, we've seen some companies flip the switch on some kind of automated platform and instantly get a couple hundred thousand hits. Now that could be because their settings are too narrow. So they're getting a lot of hits on issues that not exactly illegal transactions, but just something that you should take a closer look at and then ultimately get cleared. But because of that crazy influx of warnings and alerts and red flags, it can be tough to deal with them. But at the end of the day, you can't just brush them aside. If you did get a red flag and you don't check it out, OFAC can come in and say, well, you should have known because you've got this red flag glaring on your dashboard and you just never took a look at it. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and I never realized this, was they pointed out that a lot of the transactions were 
for small dollar amounts. And I thought that most customers on crypto, I mean, not that everybody's engaging in large transactions, but we're talking about transactions under $10. What about the cost of commissions? You know, it's almost not worth it, right? At some point. Right. So that highlighted the point that we always make that there's no materiality requirement. It can be literally a dollar transaction that is lumped in with these violations. And that's what happened in this case as well. Yeah. I mean, some of these transactions they said were under a dollar. You have to imagine that Polonix is pretty disappointed themselves that having a multi-million dollar fine because of <laughs> small right. transactions. They didn't make- when the volume was enough of them that it rose to a higher level. Yeah. To me, that was kind of just a reminder that there's no materiality requirement. It can be small transactions and we get often questions about like how large does the transaction have to be to constitute a violation? And it literally is a dollar, probably even under a dollar, anything, any value. So obviously there were other transactions involved, but because it was a total of 15 million in violations, and then they got hit with a fine of 7 million. There were plenty of large transactions too. So don't take it to suggest that transactions worth a penny are going to sink the company in, in million dollars of fines. Poloniex did candidly mess up. One thing I would like to return to as well is even talking about the areas of Ukraine that are now prohibited by OFAC. We've seen a lot of companies struggle with that because typically the Ukraine has a handful of IP addresses that cover the whole country. So to carve out specific regions has been very difficult like that. Some of our clients have simply resorted to screening postal codes from the official Ukrainian post office registry. There's different ways around it if IP addresses aren't going to work for you. But at the end of the day, this is something you need to take serious and make sure you're not doing business with Crimea or the LNR and DNR regions of the Ukraine. Yeah. For example, a large number of the violations for Poloniex were in Crimea because they got to Crimea so late. Let's move to Bitrix just for a second. I don't want to go in as deep detail here, but I do want to point out some of the common themes and some of the common sort of basic failures that occurred. So this was an enforcement action in last October with OFAC and FinCEN, and Bittrex got hit with a $24.2 million fine, about 13,000 violations. Again, of Crimea was one of the most significant, but they had 116,000 altogether. But I think the interesting point here, Matt, was Bitrix was using a vendor and they were running the names against the relevant sanctions lists in February 2016. However, they did not review individual transactions. So in other words, I guess they would onboard people, run a check on the person. That person could have been an Iranian citizen located in the EU at that point in time, then goes home to Tehran and then starts using Bitrix from Tehran. And there there was a gap in that sense. I mean, I'm sure Bitrix was not too pleased with how this turned out. What do you recall about sort of their basic failures in the screening and IP investigation process? Yeah, a couple things. So one, I believe they were focusing on screening the names exclusively. So sure, someone from Iran, they may not be listed on the SDN list, but that doesn't mean that you could still process their transactions. If I recall, it was kind of pretty humorous looking back on, I'm sure not for Bittrex, but 
OFAC highlighted in the enforcement action that one of the customers must have signed up from a non-Iranian IP address, but used their Iranian address on the onboarding form and submitted an Iranian ID to verify their identity, to verify, like, I am the person I say that I am. And that was not picked up by Bittrex systems. So that's a glaring failure, unfortunately. <laughs> and like I said, kind of humorous now looking back on it, but you should still be screening addresses and these ID cards as well, because that would have flagged this that one pretty immediately. They called that field text. In other words, the field text of the forms were not being right. reviewed. And the field text, in this case, contained an Iranian address. And if you screen your field text, it'll come up if you know. This wasn't even a customer trying to spoof their identity. This is, I am from Iran. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I'm sure the customer was like shocked he or she got through the KYC process. But then the other gap to me, which is a glaring one, is as transactions are occurring, you should still be screening the parties to the transaction automatically. And that's frustrating from, you know, as a cryptocurrency enthusiast, there are a lot of tools available to these companies to monitor transactions, maybe better than in the traditional finance world, just because everything on the blockchain is public record, essentially. So you can follow the flow of money very far back. So you should be able to identify that this transaction that your user is conducting may be dealing with a cryptocurrency mixer which will lead to significant sanctions risks or money laundering risks. Or they could be sending cryptocurrency to a dark net market. Again, massive risks there for a variety of reasons. Cryptocurrency companies have these tools to identify where the money is going to and where it's coming from in real time, and they just need to use them. <laughs> but it's frustrating, again, because those tools are there. Well, that tells me that there's no excuse then for not monitoring this if the data is so readily available or the tools are so readily available for monitoring transactions, this should have been done, no question. I didn't realize it was such a simple thing given that it's on the blockchain. It's a public transaction. These, this is an, it's a pretty big exchange, Bittrex. Yeah, to be candid, I don't know how simple it was back then when their violations first started. The tools may not have been as robust as they are now. Certainly nowadays, there's a lot of great options out there. Back then, it might have been a little more difficult. But again, the blockchain has always been public. So it was always available. Just needs to use it. And then looking at the Kraken enforcement action, here again was a problem with the Kraken situation where they paid 362000 Again, there were limitations in terms of their implementation of geo-blocking for IP addresses. And they had implemented an automated solution, but it was, again, there was a delay. And again, there was the same gap, though, where it was done at the onboarding process and then to subsequent transactions of, a let's say, customer that makes it through, they were not conducting monitoring of the transactions and of the parties. And again, we ran into that same problem. And it just seems to me like, if there's so many analytical tools that are there for blockchain, you should be using something to fill in this gap. But even yeah. Kraken had the problem. Yeah, Kraken's was, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're looking back at it too, a bit frustrated. And it was simply just the IP blocking wasn't working effectively. And this IP blocking is something that OFAC has been harping on in a lot of their enforcement actions lately, not just on cryptocurrency. 
companies that do really any business online need IP blocking now. It is just a crucial compliance control. Sure, it's not perfect. I mean, I think we all know that you can use VPNs and other things to get around it. That said, at its basic core, this needs to be implemented on virtually any online business. To Kraken's credit, they identified the problem and they voluntarily disclosed it. So this is one of the big reasons why their fine was much less than the other two companies. Bitrix did not voluntarily disclose and neither did Poloniex. That's another big takeaway here as well. If you find problems, obviously you want to remediate them, but figure out what you need to do in terms of voluntary disclosures because typically you'll be much better off than if OFAC figures it out on their own, which they usually do. <laughs> the way they typically get leads is from banks for when, if those companies at some point deal with a bank, then if the bank gets a transaction that's suspicious, they're going to notify OFAC. And that's a lot of times I've noticed how these investigations start. And so it's even more important when you know the bank's going to disclose it is to also get your client or get your company ready for a voluntary disclosure so you can try to get in there as fast as you can. Because usually it starts with banks asking questions. And don't forget and, here with cryptocurrency, we just talked about the transaction monitoring. There are tools out there. The blockchain is public. So OFAC is certainly using those tools as well. They're keeping eyes on the exchanges. They're keeping eyes on flag jurisdictions. They can track it all with these same tools. So there's a lot of eyes on the blockchain. <laughs> okay, Matt. Hey, thanks a lot for the update. If people want to get in touch with you, your email address, and how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Not only am I a big fan of cryptocurrency, I'm also a sanctions geek as well. So <laughs> any sanctions questions, even outside of the industry, reach out. You can find my contact information on our blogs page and our firm website. My email is mstankwitz at volkofflaw.com. We also do have a standard contact form on our firm's website that goes to my inbox as well. So always happy to answer questions, whatever you guys may need. All righty, Matt. Thanks again. Good to catch up with you on crypto. And we'll be back probably in, you know, the next couple of months because there'll be something else going on, I'm sure. Always. And hopefully the market's oh. back up by then. But if it is, I might be retired by then. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. You should. I keep waiting for you. I'm watching my portfolio. It's not a big one, but it's even getting smaller now. All right. See you back. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.